Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Kieran Kredia Akazaki. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Today, we're exploring the lobbying environment in Canada. How do people outside government seek to influence the policy process? And how do our civic institutions ensure that this takes place in an ethical manner? We're joined today by Christina DiCaprio. Ms. DiCaprio is the lobbyist registrar for the City of Toronto. She is a distinguished public sector executive with extensive experience in regulation and accountability. How does the City of Toronto regulate lobbying and how does that compare with other jurisdictions? So the lobbying process, well, I think what I can speak to mostly is, is how we regulate in Toronto. How do we regulate the activity? is one question we can talk about in that question. And the other one is how much activity actually happens. So how did we go about regulating lobbying in Toronto, I think is a good place to start. If we go back to the early 2000s, there was a public inquiry called the Bellamy Inquiry that reviewed the circumstances around computer licensing that had totaled close to $80 million, uh, which was a sizable amount of money. If even if you factor in inflation, even in today's figures, that's a considerable amount of money still. And it was supposed to be contracts that were procured for a million dollars, and they ballooned into that sum. And the circumstances around that business transaction were allegations of inappropriate financial relationship between the then budget chief for the city of Toronto and the salesperson who was the brother of a famous Toronto Maple Leaf. And there were allegations of conflict of interest and cash exchanging hands between those two individuals. And the scope of that inquiry lasted three years. The legal costs to the city were $60 million there were over 240 witnesses. Although the allegations weren't proven, what we were left with from the inquiry was an incredible gift of a four-volume report that lays standards, ideas, recommendations, overarching principles for what is good government and what does accountability look like and what should it look like. And at the City of Toronto, the report recommended it should have an accountability framework with four accountability officers, one being an Auditor General for Fraud and Waste, another being an Integrity Commissioner to look over standards of conduct for councillors and appointed officials, an Ombudsman to deal with principles of maladministration and fairness, and a lobbyist registrar to oversee lobbying activity. And it was recommended that there be two things with respect to to how we're going to provide transparency on the lobbying that happens in the city of Toronto. 
And those two things are a public registry that's accessible and online where lobbyists can disclose who they're lobbying, what lobbying happened, what, for, what was the form of the communication, and what was the lobbying about. And so here we are, our office stores opened in and around 2008, 2009. So we're going into our 12th year. Since our office has opened, we've dealt with over 100,000 lobbyist registry transactions to keep that index going. The amount of lobbying of the City of Toronto is robust, which indicates that there's a robust civic engagement. And the fact that you're getting that many lobbying communications recorded is a very healthy indicator that people understand the stakeholder group within the city, public office holders, citizenry, law, the lobbyists understand that this is a mature model in which if you want to engage in communications with city officials and you meet the definition of lobbyist, that you must register. And so that's a very, very good sign. How does it compare with other jurisdictions? Our regulatory framework is very rigid and very comprehensive. It's probably the most comprehensive set of rules in Canada. That is because I believe our model was born out of necessity. There were years of study and research that occurred in consultation and review that went into developing the model based on Madam Justice Bellamy's recommendations. There is a sense of pride actually within the City of Toronto for how expansive its governance model is and how the framework provides such a broad scope of accountability to the public. How many different categories of lobbyists do we have in the city? And what are the differences between those categories? In our model, we regulate three types of lobbyists. We regulate consultant lobbyists, who would be lobbyists that are paid by an entity to lobby on their matter, on a matter that is, is of benefit to them. Then we have a second category, which is in-house lobbyists, whereby the entity, the organization, has people within it that are doing lobbying on its behalf, employees, directors, etc. And then we have a voluntary lobbyist. And not every jurisdiction in the country has that, but ours does. And that is so that we make sure that we've tightened the loop and eliminated the possibility for persons' activities to go hidden just because they may not actually be employed or be, or be retained. So if you are not being paid, but you are voicing a, a communication that would support a for-profit entity and what it wants to have accomplished for its benefit, you could meet the definition of voluntary lobbyist and you would be required to register. What is considered to constitute lobbying as opposed to other forms of engagement with elected officials? Lobbying at the City of Toronto is any communication that pertains to a city decision. It's a really simple and very, very broad definition. Many people feel or have a preconceived notion that lobbying is, is about only asking for money. Or, or asking for an amendment to legislation, but it's much broader than that. It could be speaking to officials 
to advocate for a creation of a program where a program doesn't even exist. And then, you know, what we often find is that same group, once the program is established, will often come back and, and lobby to be able to secure uh, the know-how or be part of the procurement process to land the contracts to support that program. So it's very, very broad. It's any city decision. And then we can take a step back and say, wow, that's a lot. And maybe that could apply to me. But the good news, there's also a very comprehensive set of things that are exempt from the definition. So what's exempt is if you are communicating to advance an application, you have part of dealings with the city. If you are applying for a license, if you're applying for an amendment, Anything that you're communicating that advances your file from an administrative point of view, that's not lobbying. That's deemed to be part of a city process, and those communications are exempt. Anything that is part of a city-run consultation or a city public meeting is exempt. So you may depose, for example, and not at a committee, and that is not as long as, you, as long as you follow the clerk's set procedures and it's the city process for making a deposition, that communication is not lobbying. Greetings, speaking to city officials about personal matters, that's not lobbying. What would be lobbying is when you are speaking to city officials outside the process and advocating for what you're doing. That could be, and you're speaking to people that aren't necessarily involved in the process to advocate for what you're doing. That could put you in the realm of, oh, I think I need to check with the lobbyist registrar and I need to see if I meet the definition of lobbyist. How much influence do you feel lobbyists have in the policy process in Toronto? I don't know if I'm in any position to know if the lobbying has any influence. What I can tell you is that what the model was designed to do was to create a situation where there's openness in the city. And so if you look at our model, it's very transactional. So in terms of what a lobbyist is required to do, you're first required to come and register that you intend to lobby. I am so-and-so. I'm opening a registration as a lobbyist. I'm intending to lobby these public officials about these different subject matters. And, and if it's about different things, then you have to create a subject matter for everything. And then you got to establish that registration as a lobbyist prior to engaging in communication. And then once you've had your communication, be it email, be it a meeting, be it a phone call, be it a text, sometimes it's just even tweets and social media can meet that definition. You have to come back to the lobbyist registry within three days and make your filing and your reporting that you've engaged in that communication and it happened. The purpose is so that and what makes our model unique is not every jurisdiction requires you to come back and report that the communication actually happened and what the form of the communication was. Some of the models just require you to state your name and it's an open time frame. I'm going to lobby these people. Some of them may not necessarily even require you to disclose about what. But because our model is transactional, it lends itself to further dialogue and engagement from the citizenry. Because the idea is that, well, anyone who's interested in what's happening at that intersection, for example, in terms of zoning, 
could look up on the registry, has anyone lobbied about this particular matter? And if you see who those people are, which you can find on the registry and when they lobbied, if you are an interested person, arguably, you may choose to lobby as well, because at least you know who the parties are that have an interest in, in a platform or a viewpoint on that particular matter before counts. And it doesn't have to be so. And it could be anything. It could be, if you look at the top 10 subject matters on the registry, yes, the majority of things year after year are about planning, but there's technology, there's makes the top 10 every year, there's economic development is always in the top three, like historically, it's the TTC, it's water, there's so many other aspects to running a mega city, like the city of Toronto, in terms of the services that it provides and what it funds. What our purpose is as a regulator is to attach two things to the communications, the transparency that you get when you have the registrations available to the public so that everyone can look up who's lobbying who and about what. And the second side of how we regulate the City of Toronto is there is a code of conduct. There is a standard of ethics that is required of you. So you, as a lobbyist, are not just required to disclose, but you're required to follow certain standards. Like you may not put a public office holder, for example, in a conflict of interest. You may not disclose confidential information. It is a set of rules that mirrors the ethical rules that are applicable to public servants. And the code of conduct also for lobbyists also mirrors the standards that are set for public officials. So it's corollary sets of ethics. So in other words, you want to do business with the city of Toronto, you want to communicate with the city of official, then we're asking you as a city and demanding by legislation that in sole lobbying, you have to engage in that lobbying responsibly and by a code of conduct. So um, you can see the whole sphere of ethics in the governance model translating to different stakeholders, but upholding the same value system. What kinds of safeguards are in place to make sure that this process takes place in an ethical manner? And what happens in the event of violation of the rules? We also have at the City of Toronto, I think, one of the most comprehensive set of powers in terms of enforcement. We have the ability to bring a prosecution under the Provincial Offenses Act. I, as the registrar, may impose conditions on the activity of a lobbyist. I can require them to attend training. I also have the ability to ban a lobbyist from engaging in further lobbying communications. We are now seeking the expansion of those powers to include being able to levy administrative monetary penalties or fines, in other words, for late registrations. So that is something our office hopes to see in the next year or two. So you actually have a very broad menu of ways you can address a lobbying breach. So. This is important because you want that flexibility where, yes, when there's a less egregious breach, 
we hope in the interest of the public and expediency and, and to be able to just get the matter remedied, put it on the record, the public registry quickly, train the party so that it doesn't happen again, where we can find early resolution and the matter wasn't egregious, we'll go that way. But we need, in order to be effective as a regulator, we need to have those expansive measures that can help us deal with the more serious breaches. Because as they say, as a regulator, you want to have those in place because they serve a purpose just for existing. And what I mean is, when you do have that comprehensive menu, that menu stands as strong deterrence, strong deterrent for any general or specific breach that could happen. It's the impetus for people to find out, how do I do it? Let me get some advice. What's the right way to do it? My goal is really to advance, is not to do this improperly. My goal is to is to communicate to these public office holders how I think my idea or what I'm asking for could benefit the community. I don't want to get this wrong because it's not, it doesn't look good on me. It doesn't look good on my cause. And what I'm trying to do is for the, is for the better good. And so when you do that with a compliance in mind, you end up not only perhaps gaining confidence in those you're speaking to, but you could you have a win-win situation because you're engaging in a, effectively bringing your matter into the world of public discourse where you want it to be. Because I think the proper way to look at this is, is to empower the public office holders with the decisions that they actually make. And this is what I mean. When things are done in secret and we don't have that benefit of the transparency lens. You run the risk of conjecture. Well, you know, you made your decision, but you don't want anything to be tainted by conjecture about big money influencing what you're doing, or you only speaking to a small group of people. When you have a transparency lens that you can add to your activities, where you can say, yes, I'm a public office holder. I do speak to people in the community. I engage with the constituency. I engage with the public. I am I'm informed. I choose to be informed. These are the people that I've spoken to. Here they are. And when you have that established on an index, you're able to then say, but my decisions were my own. I'm an independent thinker. You have that power. To, to say, yes, I listened to a lot of people, but I arrived at my decisions on my own. And this is what this this is what the registry is all about. What are your key responsibilities as lobbyist registrar? As the lobbyist registrar, my job essentially is to ensure that the mandate of the office that's been established under the City of Toronto Act and under the lobbying bylaw is fulfilled for the public. And I guess that includes three categories of operation. The first would be making sure that the registry is maintained. And that requires a complex set of activities because you're looking at making sure the frontline registry advisors are able to assess people with compliance. And so that means that they're they're helping people to determine whether they are required to register. 
and if they are required, making sure that their registrations are meaningful and that they're understandable and that they meet the definition about what's required to be reported. So for example, they review them to make sure that they're clear and they're sufficient and that there's something that a, the public could read it and say, oh, I know what that's about. You know, so we try to ask for specificity and clarity. Otherwise, your, your registration won't be accepted. And then the other thing is they want to make sure that both the public and public office holders and lobbyists are able to search the registry. So our staff will help anyone um, who's having difficulty understanding or finding what they want to look for on, the, on our index. The second component is we provide education and outreach tools, which includes teaching, meetings with public office holders, support. We maintain the website. We provide support for anyone who is either looking to search the registry, lurking to understand how we do. We engage in activities like this wonderful opportunity that you've provided me to address the public with. Because as an office, you need to help people understand how to comply. Because if you don't engage in robust breach prevention and robust support to compliance activities, you simply won't get the registrations. And so part of your duty as a regulator is not so much to be able to say, well, I'm out to catch the bad apples, shall we say, although I hate that expression. What we really want is we want people using the registry and getting it right. And that takes a lot of people engagement and a lot of positivity and a lot of welcoming messages about here, come to us, we'll help you. We will help you figure out how to accomplish what you want to do and do it within our ethical model. Because an ethical culture is something that you build. It's not necessarily something that you can, you can approach by saying, I'm going to reconstruct after damage is done. It's so much more productive to take a positive role at the, and a constructive role at the beginning with allowing everyone to plan out their activities so that they can comply with the bylaw and the transparency can be on record. And my last duty is to oversee and accept allegations of breaches of the bylaw and determine whether some of those allegations are meritorious of, of an investigation and where necessary to pursue those investigations, you know, under the fairness of the law and to report matters that have been investigated when it is something that's in the public interest to council. And I'm also required to report to council through an annual report every year on our activities. What are some of the most common misconceptions that people have about lobbying? And if there's one thing that you wish people knew about lobbying registration that they don't, what would it be? What would be most constructive for everyone is to know that the lobbying bylaws preamble states clearly that lobbying is an important part of democracy and an important part of local democracy. And when lobbying is done ethically, when it's done in accordance with the transparency requirement and the code of conduct requirement under the bylaw, it can be a really valuable tool. Part of the misconception I think that's a detriment to the model itself is everyone doesn't want to be seen to be lobbying. It's a bad thing. It is not a bad thing. 
one of the items in the city strategic plan is an open government, is civic engagement. These are very important goals for an effective government. So lobbying, as I said, when it's compliant lobbying, is a means to which public office holders can get information that they otherwise may not get. This speaks to another misconception and that, you know, many people don't realize that but governments are under incredible financial restraint and people working on decisions often don't have access to expertise because they're often small teams, small units working on multiple projects with limited resources. Expertise about an issue that can come from the public, that can come from people in industry, is invaluable to getting a balanced 360 overview of an issue. And the feedback, frankly, is wanted if you want to make good policy. One of the things I've tried to do as registrar is to shift the focus away from my office as being purely as a watchdog, but more so as a facilitator of compliant lobbying. Once again, that was Christina DiCaprio. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter, at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. We're joined today with Wissam Abdelhamid Mohamed, the Deputy Chairsperson of the Canadian Federation of Students. Mr. Mohamed is a distinguished leader with expertise in lobbying for students. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Wesam. Thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, super excited about this interview. As the deputy chairperson, how would you say that the Canadian Federation of Students tries to influence policy and how does it define lobbying? That's a great question. So the Canadian Federation of Students is uh, the largest and the oldest national student movement. We represent over 530,000 students. And lobbying is one of the key corners of our work. So lobbying generally is defined as a process in which groups and individuals can explain their interests or subject matter to federal, provincial, and municipal governments to influence the decision-making and the policy-making. Specifically, how the Canadian Federation of Students try to influence policy. So throughout the year, we conduct in-depth research, and we have regular meetings with decision makers and consistent uh, membership mobilization. The Federation is able to present thoughtful and practical and reasonable solutions to the problems and the challenges that our members are facing, and we present those to the government while achieving tangible results for our members. We see the lobbying efforts as uh, a chance and opportunity to explain and kind of educate the policymakers about the student experience, who in turn will use the information and create meaningful change and impactful policy. We're not expecting parliamentarians to be experts on every subject matter. So it's really important and vital to democracy that experts and those with lived experience on the subject area to discuss it with the policymakers. In terms of like the orders of the government, so the Federation lobbies 
the government at both federal and provincial levels. We represent the students' perspective on how to make post-secondary education more affordable and more accessible. The Federation regularly brings issues and concerns directly to the government, and the Federation has become a strong presence on Parliament Hill and at provincial legislators as well. We meet regularly with uh, federal members of the Parliament, and members of the provincial parliaments and other government officials, civil servants and representatives from all political parties at the federal and provincial levels. And an example of this, like how impactful our work is, the private members bill T-312, which was tabled in uh, June of 2021 by MP Heather McPherson. And the Federation was consulted as a key stakeholder in the making of the bill. And we provided recommendations based on the experiences and the expertise of the members of the Federation. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to see how the CFS plays a really key role in this sort of cycle of information that helps policymakers. You mentioned that the Federation represents over 530,000 students and different student unions. Do you ever find it difficult to reach a consensus on what your goals should be with all of these individuals to represent? So when representing such a large group of students, there can always be challenges to getting consensus. However, the overall goals and direction of the organization is determined by the membership in a very democratic uh, structure throughout our annual general meetings. And our democratic structure ensures that our student members are fully consulted on all the governing decisions and that we have an ironclad governing structure and documents that allow for a full spectrum of student representation. All the student members are welcome to get involved and participate in uh, policy development discussions by attending the general meetings as delegates and participating in committee spaces as well. Our emails are always open to students who are interested in sharing their uh, unique viewpoints on policies, and we view their feedback as very critical. And through the structure of the Federation and the democratic process, we ensure that all of our decision and all of our work is representative of the entire membership. Okay, so there's a really strong focus on democracy and sort of balancing out all the voices. That's great to hear. Can you tell us more about what the process of lobbying is like for CFS? What would be an average lobby week? Sure. So as I mentioned, like we do lobbying around the year. However, we have a lobby week where we meet intensively with MPs. So what is a lobby week? The National Office of Canadian Federation of Students organizes lobbying opportunities for student representatives across the country to meet with members of parliament and senators. And typically it's organized in early spring in advance of the federal budget. These meetings bring a diverse group of students face-to-face with the policymakers where they can discuss membership concern with the current state of the post-secondary education. As I mentioned, outside of Lobby Week, we still meet regularly with uh, public servants and government representatives on different committees. For example, we meet with uh, Employment and Social Development Canada. We meet with the IRCC, Immigration and Refugees Citizenship, Department of Finance, 
and so on and so forth. And we're excited to add to our lobbying effort and portfolio this year the representatives from the departments of housing and diversity and inclusion, as well as the mental health and addiction. So the process of lobby week, we start preparing for the lobby week in advance, typically like months in advance of the actual week. And first through discussions with our members and elected officials, priority subjects are decided upon. And we have to work closely with our provincial offices to ensure that like we all working within a timeline that aligns for everyone and that we don't have conflicts. And these are the, the issues that we bring forward or the issues that are impacting our membership that we believe that government should be made aware of and educated on. Secondly, documents are created for lobby week and those documents are provided in advance of the lobby week meetings and during the meetings as well to kind of better explain those priority issues and back it up with the research and statistics and data. And students who are members of the Canadian Federation of Students can take part in our lobby week. So we typically send out a call out for delegates from all student unions and everyone is welcome to apply to be a delegate representing their school and being part of lobby week within the federation. So we send out the email with a form for students to fill out and those who are interested will fill it out, send it back. And we create a target uh, list of parliamentarians uh, whom we believe would be best served to learn more about the students' issues. And then there's a lot of like emailing and calling and follow-ups to set up those meetings with MPs and senators. And during the lead up to lobby week, we provide training sessions for the delegates that are going to be participating so that we ensure that everyone feels ready and supported and confident going into those meetings. And this provides students with a great learning experience as well for students to learn more about the inner workings of the government and meet with their elected representatives. And during the lobby week itself, although like we're going to be doing this year, a lobby week virtually, Students are able to log in and have virtual meetings with MPs and senators to chat with the Federation staff about the experience. And after the meetings, we debrief and then we follow up with the emails and polls. And any questions that may come up during those meetings are answered. And we try our best to ensure that overall the experience is fantastic for the students and also impactful on the decision-making process. I, I want to highlight that one of the key targets and goals of Lobby Week as well is the relationship building experience. It has been years since many of the parliamentarians we meet with have been students. And so it's really important to build their relationship and tell the story of us being students and explain this experience thus far and keep this relationship going on. What an amazing opportunity. Hopefully within some listeners, there are some future delegates. We look forward to it. <laughs> you mentioned previously that a lobbying direction and theme of the Federation is to advocate for post-secondary education and sort of all the issues that come with that. Are there any other initiatives that students may be surprised that the Federation lobbies for or anything else you're focusing on this year? So as always, we're advocating for accessible, high-quality education for all. 
And this includes a special focus on marginalized and racialized students and international students as well. Our focus on accessible education has not shifted and remains our number one priority. This year, the main theme for CFS lobbying will be consistency. Our goal is to be active throughout the year and not just through the lobby week. And we're focusing our efforts on setting up uh, meetings through the year with MPs, senators, and specific caucus members and public servants, and to appear on committees so as to further our impact uh, during the making of legislation. As always, the Federation is mandated by our membership and the membership's direction. And I think for a long time, lobbying was solely seen as the lobby week effort, but our goal is really to have like multiple touch points with parliamentarians and to work alongside coalition partners and allies in our sector to spread our reach. I do believe that by working with coalition partners, uh, we know that our reach is being more impactful. We, this year, we intend to follow up with a newly formed government, and the commitments will be laid out within the mandate letters to advocate for specific and intentional policy changes. As soon as we know more, we're ready to act. We're excited to add to our lobbying portfolio this year that represented us from the newly created departments of housing and diversity and inclusion, as well as the mental health and addictions. All of those are, have been key priorities for both the Federation and the Syrians membership at large. To sort of touch on a point that you mentioned earlier with relationship building. So it's clear that the Federation has to have multiple touch points and meetings with many different stakeholder organizations. What is it like maintaining relationships with organizations that the Federation may have some ideological conflicts with or may not necessarily agree with? Is it difficult to still build those relationships? I would say that it's definitely like an ongoing effort to try to work with uh, everyone and see where we, what common grounds we can have to kind of collaborate on. We're not trying to like force our ideology on anyone else, but like definitely if there is a room to collaborate, even if we don't fully agree, we're, we're up for it and we're totally open for it. We do have a lot of coalition partners and solidarity partners that we work with. And we, even though their membership is different, and yet we have a lot of common grounds and common goals and we have solidarity and it becomes more and more impactful in our work. There are intersections between our members. So a lot of the students are working and they, they might be actually members of labor unions. And through those intersections, we're able to find more impactful discussions about how we can all collaborate and stand in solidarity to serve our members better. And finally, for our last question today, what barriers have you faced in trying to get results for Canadian students? So definitely like a lack of a federal minister of advanced education or a national post-secondary education strategy. And mean that uh, students have to lobby across a number of departments, provinces, and institutions, and this can be very challenging. The changing landscape of post-secondary education in Canada and challenges to students' right to democratically organize it has been also a challenge. An example of that, the Student Choice Initiative Challenge in Ontario. In January 2019, the Ontario government 
developed a policy trying to make the student membership and student unions optional. And this was like a strong attack to the democracy of the student unions and our ability to organize. And we fought that back in the courts and we won actually the legal challenge twice. But like such attacks and such challenges to the students' right to democratically organize can definitely be a challenge and make it difficult for us to do the work that we're doing. Add to that COVID-19, like COVID-19 has definitely created unforeseen challenges that has caused the Federation to be like reactive in some ways. And like we have been able to advocate and when the Canada Emergency Student Benefit and other critical short-term supports for students whose limitations excluded students like myself. Uh, So like international students have been excluded from the Canada Emergency Student Benefit but we have been trying our best to fight and advocate and we won some some short-term support for students and just within the last year like we fought and won csp for students we received commitments to honor recommendations to freeze interest on the federal portion of the student loans and have set precedent for students right to democratically self-govern and organize through the Ontario court challenge that we did. Students' issues are complex, uh, for sure, and we're seeing incremental change on injustices that the Federation has advocated against for decades, including, for example, the ban on conversion therapy and blood ban, something that the Federation has been advocating for uh, decades, which is like we're seeing it's being acted on now. It has been so great having you here to discuss the Federation's efforts and highlight what student lobbyists are most focused on right now. Thank you so much, Waysam. And you can find the Canadian Federation of Students at, at CFSFCEE on Twitter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really glad that I, I got to meet with you and I look forward to following your podcast, actually. <laughs> Once again, that was Wissam Abdelhamid Mohammed. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the lobbying environment in Canada. Today's show was produced by Jessica Pan, Amber Zhang, and me, Kieran Kredia Akazaki. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Please be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.